This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Paul Anthony Nelson and joining me in the cave tonight are Evil Emma Westwood. Evil. <laughs> That's me. Evil. Like, like the fruits of the devil. <laughs> the devil. <laughs> you know me too well, Paul. I do. Uh, I feel, you know, it's, it's appropriate. And Savage Cerise Howard. What's... Going on. <laughs> we haven't even got horror films or anything on no. tonight's show, but anyway. No, just Rain it in, people. We are in a cave, people. Do we forget this? We're going crazy. We're we haven't a, seen sunlight. We're in a cave. It doesn't mean it's a creepy cave. <laughs> Could be Plato's Could cave. Could be quite salubrious, in fact. You know, there's there's this images on the wall being projected, but everything else is dark and spooky and everything else. <laughs> Tonight's show, we'll catch up with everyone's favourite dog-loving assassin in John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. For our retro pick this week, we'll unearth Julie Dash's 1991 feature debut, Daughters in the Dust. And we'll then we'll follow Mike Lee to 19th century Manchester to depict one of Britain's darkest days in Peterloo. But before we begin, mere hours after our show went to air last week, we lost one of the true icons of Hollywood cinema, Doris Day, at the tender age of 97. Uh, Emma, you're quite the fan? <laughs> yeah, she called it a day. <laughs> yeah, she did. I uh, see. That, that just, yeah. you, I just thought of that on the spot. <laughs> I looked at you and I thought of that on the spot. <laughs> Doris, wow, what an amazing performer. I think that uh, she encapsulates a whole certain generation of Americana and has been this incredibly wholesome blonde. Um, I, I think her personality is encapsulated in this, her, na- her, her showbiz name, Doris Day. But um, she was actually really quite... Um, subversive uh, in in terms of the way she she connected with queer society as well. I think Calamity Jane. No one can uh, doubt that that film had queer undertones or overtones, and uh, and her relationship, uh, her great friendship with Rock Hudson, who was a closeted gay man at the time. That they made all these amazing romantic comedies together, like Pillow Talk. Um, Pajama Game. Was he in the Pajama Game? I think he was. No, it's no, uh, the one? three they did together were Pillow Talk, Lover Come Back, and Send Me No Flowers. Send Me No Flowers, sorry. Got that wrong. But also uh, an amazing singer with this beautiful, clear, crystalline voice um, and, you know, famously, Kesara Sarah from... How does that uh, go, Alfred Emma? Kesara Sarah. How about that? That's my Doris Day. That's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> We're waiting animal, for the rest. Animal rights <laughs> activist, um, incredible woman who had one son who was a, a very famous... Um, uh, record producer who um, she outlived. She's yeah, she's she's one of the good ones, you know. But a wonderful, wonderful life. Something to be celebrated. Yeah, uh, she recorded an album in 2011. 
Did she really? How bizarre is that? Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, though, if you go through her bio, that the amount of stuff that's kind of uncredited recalls to mm. uh, elements of her career and it just shows how incredibly influential she was. I mean, she she represented a certain type of, Amer- of America and she's been criticised for that. She was a lifelong Republican. She was a lifelong Republican. <laughs> Let's not talk about that sort of stuff tonight. But she loved animals. She did. She did and spent a lot of her life and, and money fighting for them, which is amazing. Oh, wow. Best segue. Speaking of loving animals, let's talk about... <laughs> I was about to say we're going about as far away from Doris Day as possible, but loving animals brings us to John Wick. It Well, yes. <laughs> How about that? Dogs. The sad sack pooch loving merchant of death. John Wick. Uh, picking up literally minutes after John Wick 2 ends, John and his new, still nameless dog, find themselves on the run as his friend Winston, manager of the swanky assassin-only hotel, The Continental, gives Wick an hour's head start before the giant contract on his head, placed there by the assassin overseer board The High Table, goes into effect. Doubled from the second film seven million to fourteen million, this contract brings out every assassin. Um, as Wick, tired, injured, and alone, sees assassins out to get him on every street corner. But it's not paranoia. In this world, somehow, pretty much everyone and their sister is an, is an assassin, or you know, linked to one. And it's up to him to look up old colleagues, call in old markers, and try and extricate himself from this mess. Of course, this being a John Wick picture, he's going to have to shoot, punch, shoot, kick, shoot, stab, and shoot his way across the globe to do it. And even then, that might not be enough. Emma, did this make you want to book your own room at the Continental? Or flee to Morocco to live with a pair of hilariously well-trained attack dogs? If I could live in the Continental, I would be a very happy girl. Not only that, but I would be singing Fred Astaire songs. (laughs) (laughs) And living that whole life. And also I'd be completely safe because nothing can happen on the consecrated grounds of the Continental. Why would you ever want to leave the Continental? And I would drink martinis with Ian McShane. I would be so happy. You have no idea how happy I would be. And I was very happy watching John Wick 3. I've um, very much, I've enjoyed the last uh, two films, John Wick 1 particularly. Um, uh, Our former co-host, Alexandra Helen Nicholas, was the one who told me, no, you've got to see that, Emma, you'll (laughs) love it. He goes mad because his dog's killed. You know, that was pretty much the way she was um, presenting it to me. And I did really, really enjoy it. I loved it. And um, But John Wick, John Wick 2, interesting. I, I enjoyed it, but more as I th- feel a legacy film because um, I haven't seen it since it was released and I came into seeing John Wick 3 not revisiting it or not feeling the need to revisit it. And I realised that pretty much all I took from it was Franco Nero. Yes. But that might say more about me. So I went into this with, um, and I took someone along with me who had um, binge watched to get up to date and was pretty excited to come into this third one. And I didn't feel like I I needed much to catch up. And I think within the first 10 minutes I knew I was just going to love this film. And it's a long film. It's not a short film by any stretch of the word, word, um, word the world. Um, this... Uh, 
the I like the I like the comic panel world. You know this kind of thing. Then I think I kind of remember it really being started in Sin, with Sin City or something like that. Mm. Um, but it, I think that that kind of you know uh, driving right the the, the color the, the the film noir the coloured film noir film um, in in night at night time. I mean, in John Wick three, there's New York never seems to be. Um, no one wakes up Populated. in New York. <laughs> well, it's it's dark the whole time. Yeah. It's literally nighttime the whole the whole way through, and there's this. I, I like this idea of this undercurrent of this sort of parallel world where the homeless people are assassins <laughs> and everyone is an assassin and there's this major you know mission control i don't know where they are situated but where there's these incredible tattooed women who populated by suicide you know suicide girls yeah you know, the- <laughs> yes it's 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 yeah. it's freaking nuts but more than anything what i think that john wick manages to achieve under chad stelsky I guess you say Stahelski, Stahelski, um, is uh, that, and and he was a a stunt performer, okay, so he's not necessarily Keanu Reeves' stunt double in the Matrix Matrix, trilogy and many other films. I mean, really, the Matrix is just, you know, all through this. But the, what I find remarkable is the, the way that he can see an action film compared to seemingly other action directors which is he he plays out the narrative without cutting into the action and i i love that and i'm not an expert on kickboxing or anything like martial arts or anything like that but i love the way that he played the narrative played out in the in the martial arts or the fight sequences and that you could actually see the story in the sequences rather than a whole lot of cup cup blur blur which seems to be the case in so many action movies today yeah it very much shoots it like choreography yeah you know, they almost look like dance sequences absolutely at times and showing whole bodies and showing um and there couldn't be more reflective surfaces in this movie. I'm wondering, how the hell oh do you not gosh. see a camera in any of this? Nuts. Smoke and mirrors, Paul. <laughs> Bloody good smoke There was and probably a camera in there, but, you know, it was so fast we didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I suspect there's a little bit of digital trickery here or there when necessary to... Just rub it out when yeah, you just, need to. Exactly. Yeah. Easily enough done these days. Uh, this, this is a lot of fun, um, at least... For me, for a while, the first fight sequences I really, really enjoyed. The one in the library is fantastic. Very creative, violent <laughs> yes. uses of of uh, hefty-looking tomes. To, <laughs> you can lodge those in all sorts of places, it turns out. Who knew? That looked very painful. That, that was quite palpable for me. I, I felt those fights. And then the, the absurdity <laughs> of a... sorry yeah. for you, Sarah. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, is that due to your time spent in university libraries? Just yeah, well... <laughs> frustration. I, well, I can relate to books uh, as a, a, a weighty thing. Um, some of the rest of the fights, they, they assume increasing levels of absurdity and, and they, they become something that I can't actually sort of feel and just watch as spectacle rather than wince from contact between body and body or body and body with the mediating influence of a heavy book, say, shoved in someone's mouth into a... You know, it's just... <laughs> that, that sequence was painful but fun. Um, but I watched most of this film just thinking of all the films it reminds me of because there's just countless forerunners to this film that, 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 this, that John Wick 3 and I think 2 before it and 1 I didn't see, but uh, the, the aesthetic seems quite sustained and I... I'm just reminded of countless uh, 
precursors and i mean that that's both fun and boring in its in its way as well i, I, I was any number of times thinking of ridley scott's black rain and blade runner that that particular nighttime look mm-hmm. Jeez, um, black rain doesn't get too many shout outs no it days. doesn't but it, it ought to actually it's yeah, a bit underrated yeah. Our, and that aesthetic was very you know ridley was right in the zone still at that point he yes. was i did yeah. that film a lot so that neo-noir um sort of vibe um but then the the cool gangster, uh, taciturn gangster type, the Alain Delon, Les Samurai, then through John Woo, especially filtered through John Woo and Hong Kong action film, without which this film surely couldn't exist if it hadn't been for... I mean, like you mentioned The Matrix before, in which this director worked on as Keanu's stunt double. I mean, The Matrix has a huge debt to... I forget the choreographer's name there, but it was a, uh, a veteran. Yen Wu-Ping? Yeah, yeah, a veteran Wu-Ping, of Hong yeah. Kong action cinema. And um, so, yeah, I was just, just I couldn't not think of Alan Delon. I mean, Delon didn't bust the same moves, but he had the same sort of presence and, and you know, long trench coat, barely said a word, and um, dispensed violence when necessary in a sort of fatalistic kind of way, um, but perhaps with a slightly, a bit less of an aura of invincibility. I mean, this is comical. This really is comic book. There's not really much of a, a feeling of anything very significant being at stake. It's just spectacle, and that's fine too. And that's uh, put me in mind of Seijin Suzuki in particular, a uh, Japanese pop filmmaker who really peaked in the 60s, I would say, and, and made some very fun pop art gangster films. Um, and I, I saw his stamp all over this as well. They were in- extremely inconsequential but great fun and very groovy. And... Um, yeah, otherwise I, I didn't have a, a huge amount to pull from this film in terms of greater themes other than, you know, maybe tying tying in uh, American conspiracy theories about a deep state. I mean, this um, <laughs> that, that is very much in the mix here that there is... I think, he, I think you just gave me a melting pot of amazing things that come together in this film that I thought managed to create a singular vision. Yes, it's kind of... it's. It's shallow. It's not really, you know, it hasn't got a lot of soul. But but in terms of filmmaking, you know, you, that lineage that you just you just go is all very pertinent. And and I felt that John Wick still creates the John Wick world. See, so like, weirdly, I feel like it doesn't have a lot of meaning, but it has soul. Because this is the this is one of the weirdest franchises we have. I can't believe, like, this is the third film. They clearly set it up for a fourth. Clearly, there's yep. going to be a television series based called The Continental, based around The <laughs> yes. Continental. Like, for I'm going to three... be the woman at the bar. Yeah, you know, to- <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, standing <laughs> looking for Franco Nero and singing Caesara. <laughs> <laughs> but like. Four, like a three, almost four films in a television series out of a story about an assassin whose wife dies, whose dog gets killed, and he gets angry and goes for revenge. Like, they've extrapolated all of this material and made this sort of very comic book franchise. I think you bang on with the Seiji and Suzuki stuff. I think as there's pop art is something... I hadn't thought of that, actually. Oh, the so there, Suzuki though. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. Like, it, this, these are pop art. Like, the production design gets more and more insane with each film. Like, in terms of these these multi-level, moving, shifting, mirrored 
uh, uh, giant buildings, you know. And this incredible collision of, um, you know, traditional, more classic architecture and the modern that's it's yes. you know actually collides in each scene and and I mean I think the Continental is actually the Flatiron Building if we ever see it. I from think the it outside. is. Yeah. yeah, I keep wondering that. Yeah. I, I keep meaning to check. What, what about the extremely anachronistic bureaucracy that underpins the um, this, this underworld organisation and its code, which is very out of Les Samurai too. This the whole idea of the gangster code. I mean, there's. The, that sort of thing's been mythologised for a long time, but there's not been that many films, I think, that have engaged with that sort of... Not outside of the Yakuza films. Yeah, exactly, because yeah, yeah. it is a, a very um, Japanese notion, mm. the, the samurai um, and the way of the samurai. And um, But the, the bureaucracy is it's so anachronistic. They're all using very steampunky-looking mm. tools. Mm-hmm. It's all very analogue. Mm-hmm. Um, Even the Continental, it's a very old-fashioned universe, you know. Everyone, yeah. Like, I think Ian McShane's character uses a, rot- you know, kind of a rotary phone. Yep. Yeah, everybody's yeah, like... You actually have to put your finger in the little round thing and, and turn it. I'm <laughs> sure there are a whole generation of folk out there who've never even seen one of those phones, let alone operated one. And yeah. there's a phone... It's literally phone operators sitting in a room yeah. passing a switchboard. messages. Yeah. A, a switchboard, mm. yeah. And and, type, and right. sending up pneumatic tubes and... Oh, I love to, pneumatic tubes. And, and, and even, oh, that's the other thing. I have thing. such a thing for pneumatic tubes. <laughs> They're great. Yeah. I, I love a pneumatic tube. Um, that's a conversation for later. <laughs> uh, weirdly, the Umbrella Academy, the recent Netflix series, also makes use of pneumatic tubes. You actually, you've just reminded me to, with what uh, Cerise was recalling with the Black Rains and all of that. Blade Runner, I mean, the, the idea of... Um, the there was something when they went up the New York uh, library steps and the idea of having those kind of fluorescent tubing mm. under the steps that and and the umbrellas even though the the fluorescent tubes weren't the the handles or the sticks of the umbrellas they were just you know oriented in a um, horizontal position rather than vertical it was all there it just felt very very Blade Runner-esque. That's everything in this film is painstakingly production design. Um, also, too, did you notice that uh, when they send out the contract to all the worldwide assassins, they yeah. go to their mobile phones and almost all their mobile phones were like old-school Nokias? Yes. Nokia must have sponsored. Yeah, but like not even new Nokia's. Like, like it's like like not smartphones. Like they're all. It's like wow, they're going to play Snake after receiving that. <laughs> it's very yeah. You're right. It's this whole anachronistic and it's very old world and you know very Chesterfields and kind of these sort of almost like ballet. Mm, gentlemen's clubs, but in that sort of old world sort of sense. But you know, obviously appropriately diverse for our modern world. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's. Yeah, it's and it's and of course, and um, what we haven't mentioned is the high table send an adjudicator, yes, to come and uh, make sure that all the affairs are in order and all the people who are supposed to be killing John Wick are doing so and not helping him, and um, they're played by an actor named Asia Kate Dillon who identifies as non-binary. Oh, okay. And um, is in the TV show Billions as a, a, a oh, gender-neutral, okay. non-binary yeah. character. Um, so she's rep- – oh, well, they're representing yeah. the, the high table. Yeah. So you've got this sort of anachronistic surroundings and way of doing things, but in this very, very modern landscape. Yeah. Um, which is – it was very cool. I really like it, and and it is a very. It's almost like a hipster affectation at times. I think with the with the old world stuff that yeah. steampunky sort of aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's some 
thing, uh, international relations issues that could do with some unpacking in this film. Um, <laughs> I think that at one stage my friend said something about, oh, that's not very realistic. I, and I was like, you've picked that bit about this film? What's it? And I can't even remember what it was because it was quite insignificant in terms of the whole unreality once you see, of this movie. Once you see John Wick get slammed by two cars, not one, but two cars, and then instantly get up and fight off two other highly trained assassins fairly <laughs> handily, you're like, mm, we're not in Kansas anymore. Um, but I l- also great animal work. Oh, my God, those dogs. So Halle and Berry's horse. character. Had- and oh, horse. the horse, yes. The horse was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> two attack dogs and a horse. Yeah, we won't go into spoilers, but oh my god, amazing! I mean, the dogs had me cracking up with laughter. Um, <laughs> also, uh, I loved uh, Mark DeCascos as the um, who's sort of a bit of a staple from '90s martial arts films. Has sort of been recalled to be John Wick's kind of nemesis slash number one fanboy. That was in hilarious, this. and he's really terrific. He's uh, a lot of come fun. Come sushi chef. Yes. I love that. Just this idea that everyone see this is like us. See, we're like you know superheroes. We we actually have other jobs, and then we come and talk about film at night. Yeah. Do you have you another know? job? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's an assassin, Do- aren't you? <laughs> I wasn't going to say so on the air. Paul. <laughs> But yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right. I think, look, I think it's probably it's a good twenty minutes too long. The you know the 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 fight scenes could be a little, it could be a lot more visceral and a little less choreographed. But I think again, that goes with the whole pop art visual feel of the thing. Totally with it. I just had a lot of fun. Yeah, totally with it. Totally sucked in. Even that that last, there's a surprise, surprise. There's a big end fight sequence which probably goes for twenty minutes. It is incredibly long, but. I just thought, what a hoot, you know, especially I, I had a tiring day and um, it was a film that engaged me the whole way, you know, I've by being completely vacuous and nonsensical. <laughs> well, well yeah. no, it was sensical, don't get me wrong, but, yeah, nuts. Yeah, Great. absolutely. And I think I enjoyed it. I, I, I think I like the first one more, but I like this more than the second one. Mm. Um, I think it had a bit more... Um, Opulence. Mm. Um, I, I, I think I'll agree. I think because the first one's always, you know, set up establishing films are always great. What can you say? And uh, and <laughs> and if anyone's wondering, Parabellum is Latin for prepare for war. So there you go. There Actually, you go, do they kids. mention that? At they point do. Point in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Ian McShane gets to say it in that beautiful <laughs> gravelly voice of his. John Wick, Chapter Three. Parabellum is now showing at all good major cinemas. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, let's float back on the wind to 1991 to experience Julie Dash's debut feature, Daughters of the Dust. Premiering at the Sundance Film Festival before becoming the first feature film directed by an African uh, African American woman to be distributed theatrically in the US, Daughters of the Dust is a significant picture we don't hear enough about. Set in 1902, it tells the story of three generations of the Pazant family on the small sea island of Ebo Landing, just off Georgia, as they prepare to migrate to the mainland. The Pazant family are Galar, or otherwise known as Geechee people. Their ancestors brought to America as slaves, but over the ensuing centuries have developed their own West African-infused culture and language, and the film's English dialogue is spoken entirely in their Galar uh, Creole dialect. 
The film is told in a non-linear fashion, narrated by an unborn child speaking the wisdom passed down by her ancestors, bearing omnipotent wis- uh, witness to the Pazant family's joys and divisions during this period of change. Eula is pregnant, but not to her beloved husband Eli, who suspects that his wife may have been raped by a white man. Nana, the family's matriarch, still believes in the old ways and is determined to stay on the island as two of her granddaughters, the staunchly Christian Viola and the free-spirited Yellow Mary, as, as well as her lover, return from some time in the city on the mainland to take one last look at the island before spiriting the rest of the family over. The community are divided over whether to stay or go, and this clash of old and new ways, as well as the fate of the, the Gullah culture, and whether that is something represented by a place or what one holds in their heart and transfers to their descendants, is the backdrop that frames Julie Dash's landmark film. Cerise, this is your retro pick for the week. Is Daughters in the Dust a film you hold in your own heart? Well, it hadn't been. I picked this because it was a film I'd long wanted to catch up with. I'd long known of its reputation and had been offered really pretty few chances to see it. It's a film that's not had much exposure around here, but it was a few years ago restored and and re-released and now Netflix have, have picked it up. So they are good for some things. Um, so I, I <laughs> should do wa- more of this sort of stuff. That, yeah, they should do a bit more of this. Um, there's some other Orson Welles unfinished films they could perhaps <laughs> see through to completion yet. There might be some Julie Dash unfinished films as well. Well, one has to wonder because this film was made uh, quite some time ago now. 1991. And, and she's had a, a career... Um, mostly making TV films, many of them highly regarded, including uh, one telling the Rosa Parks story a few years ago uh, with Angela Bassett. Um, But, yeah, this is such um, a singular film. I do wonder if its singularity is simply because she's really been offered very few chances to make more films. And I I can see why this wasn't hugely commercially successful when it came out, because it's actually a deeply strange film. (laughs) It's extremely beautiful. Um... But it has a, such odd rhythms and it, it, it's one of the most languid, dreamy films I've seen for a long time. I just watched it last night and I, I was drifting, I, um, partly my own fatigue, but I think a large part of it actually, just, just how, how deeply peculiar, unfamiliar to me, the rhythms of this film and its dialogue are. And, and it, it's, it's just almost as if it's got a few little... No, not. Uh, sort of Brechtian devices it uses. Not they don't bring attention to themselves, but just something there to distance the viewer a little, or just to try to recalibrate the way we view things. I think to just um, try to fall into a different rhythm as a viewer, and um, it just—it's not that a film that you know. Sometimes you're very aware of a film that confounds expectations because you're you're set up to expect something. This just drifts in its odd, non-linear way, and. Um, yeah, I, I I didn't catch every line of dialogue, but I, I generally caught the gist. But it, it just it moves in such odd, liquid sort of a way that um, you know, I I, I finished it admire the viewing, admiring it tremendously, and thinking I need to really watch that again because it it I did not absorb all of that, mm. but my, that was a beautiful experience. It's hard to because of the um. The language. I mean, the language um, is almost in its cadences and everything like a Caribbean style language. So it's like watching something like The Harder They Come. Mm. You start, you know, 10 minutes in, in you go, oh, they're speaking English. <laughs> you know, and then you slowly get into it. This, for some reason, when I, and I don't know why this happened, but it actually, um, my, 
my subtitles came up when I watched it. So I watched it with subtitles. So I probably caught much more than you did, Yeah, I turned Cerise. mine on. Oh, really? I, I watched it for yeah. about three quarters of an hour and then there were certain things I wasn't catching. I was like, no, I think I'll put the subtitles yeah. on. And often, you know, there'd be subtle differences, but you'd, that it helped you sort of pick up on what was actually being it, yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, look, it was helpful. Um, it, but, and it's a type of film that was, well, it was quite languid so, and poetic. So I didn't feel that, um, for example, there's a film, The Realm, that's on at the moment, the Spanish um, political corruption film that is very, very fast and Spanish speak very fast as well. So when you're watching subtitles and trying to follow that type of action, it's very difficult. This film, different, mm. <laughs> very different in many ways. I agree with what Cerise was saying. I found very peculiar. I, I, I found... I keep on thinking about it because I can't work out how she directed her performances to create uh, a singular cultural experience in film. I don't know how representative it is of those actual people because mm. <laughs> um, I don't know them. And I've never seen this representation on film before. And it's a curious African-American repre- representation because if you're looking at a film from the nine, and the idea was it's set in 1902, anything we see is sort of, you know, some sort of um, urban squalor or remnants of slave culture in in um, African American representation at that time. But this was not like that. Even though there was there was the talk of the the slavery and their connection to Africa, which is much stronger with these people than I think a lot of um, African American cultures. They were able to sort of keep that memory alive, which was presented verbally through this film. There was a lot of storytelling. Telling, but also the uh, they had all very um, the the ones who had been slaves had um, died. Um, hands. They were had their hands dyed mm. to this deep indigo blue, which looked really like a dense black, right? Which was really curious. And it was taken from mining out of the ground. Like yeah, for they were the they indigo. were doing. Yeah, they were creating sort of blocks or mm. uh, something like that. And it went to a lot of problem, pa- a lot of pains to show their food, the okra and the the shrimp. And it's incredibly specific. There was about so really many really specific, yeah. and and yet the performances were all very. Dis- disparate, uh, different, and I couldn't. I'd be interested to know more about that culture. It's it's interesting because the place where they're situated, Ebo Landing, um, doing just looking into the film a little bit, um, was actually a kind of a, a, a famous place within African American history because it was the setting of a mass suicide in 1803 by captive. Um, uh, people for, um, uh, who had taken control of their slave ship and refused to submit to slavery. Oh, okay. So they, in in an act of defiance against their captors, they committed suicide. Well, the, so it's this place of defiance. It felt it felt defiant. Like I, I watched it, and strangely, I felt these parallels to something like Picnic and Hanging Rock. Yeah, which, yes, totally. Which has absolutely no cultural parallel in any way. I mean, could Picnic, Picnic and Hanging Rock is probably the whitest film you could see yet. There was something about this imagery of in these, um, you know, these white period sort of your know, smocks running on running on the beach or in nature. Is that a beautifully tailored smocks. I mean, yeah. we, we never saw who may have made these beautiful clothes. Because the uh, ones that came Nana. from the mainland, I could see. It's like, all right, they've yeah. been in the city, but the ones that are on the island, it's like, yeah, is, who's stitching this stuff? Because it's 
pretty good. <laughs> yeah, oh, the, the, it is. It's stunning. Though they never seem to change from day to day. But then again, when one day ends and another begins is all quite blurry too. And I mean, the narrator is an unborn child. Yeah. I, I've seen a good few films where there's a narrator from beyond the grave, like they've had their life and lived it. But here the narrator is someone who hasn't actually had their life yet. It's it's and the, speaking like a wise person, like yeah. this ancestral knowledge. Yeah, so it, it's there is so much that's deeply curious and unique about this film. There, there are certain pleasures there that are very conventional. You look at this; it is sumptuous. The color in this film is just exquisite. And it reminds me of some Iranian cinema that also is in a similarly poetic register and languid, and lets a lot of symbolic visual language do the heavy lifting. But um, if you don't really have all that many tools to decode that language, if it's even there, because it's hard to be sure, because this, this is just such an alien environment this film positions all of the action in, such as it is. And all of the interactions between these characters across the generations is very eccentric. Um, you know, the Yellow Mary, that was her name, wasn't mm, it? Yellow, yeah. yeah, it's supposedly um, uh, a, a sex worker, I think, back on the mainland yes. who's come back to town. But no she one... She was ruined. Ruined. But then mm. she seems very welcome and very at ease back with her family. They give her a little bit of ribbing, but it, it seems kind of cool. And there's a queer relationship in there that's treated utterly matter-of-factly. Which mm. is yeah, which I didn't even pick up on that they yeah. were meant to be a couple. I was, you know, it was like, oh, okay. Well, she but, was kind of almost like, mute. Yeah. The other woman was kind of it was, but that was strange in itself. Yeah, some people were extremely loquacious, <laughs> yeah. but in a very mannered way, and mm. suddenly burst into theatrics. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I was. It was a complete. I will say it's a completely unique world. I don't know whether it's real or not, mm. but it also played out in this sort of idea. I think the whole film was about setting up this. Uh, unusual cultural dynamic um, because all it, that, apart from the the B story around um, the rape and this conception of a child and the acceptance of a new child, which is our unborn narrator, um, who we see, who we see, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so not well. so unborn. Yeah. <laughs> unborn, but yeah, like a spirit. Yeah, like and a, suddenly yeah. and occasionally gets in, involved in little slow motion. Um, antics as well yeah. like the, the, sometimes the film just slows down mm. like quite literally yes. the image but it, a strange staccato yeah very staccato it was, a, yeah, it very. was an interesting slow-mo and then um it all it's all leading to this migration to the mainland mm. should or shouldn't who chooses to who chooses not to um it is a long way to get there yeah, I will it is. Say. And I've got to say, like, I love the dreaminess of it. I was less enamoured with this kind of the Shakespearean final act where, you know, the whole Shakespeare yeah. trope of getting all the cast in a room and they all have at each other? It suddenly felt very dramatic and mannered in a way, like very... And a monologue. There was a definite... There was yeah. very strong monologue there as well. And that sort of... By that point, fevered, I was a little... A fevered monologue. Yes. <laughs> I was a little less interested by that point. But it's... Yeah, it is certainly beautiful. But that's the thing. It's a culture that's unique to African-Americans, let alone unique to, you know, the conventional cinema. You know, it's It is very, fascinating. It is. And, you know, apparently she... Uh, Julie Dash, her father's family... Uh, descended from Gullas. Oh, so that's okay. where she got the inspiration. But it's definitely worth a look. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a landmark film, no matter how you slice it. Yeah. And it is a, un- a unique look at a unique culture. And, yeah, I mean, it's it's right there on Netflix. It's one of the dreamiest film experiences I've had in a long time. It's just, yes, very 
on Eric and uh, that soundtrack too even just lends itself to the dreaminess of a peculiar African flavoured but it couldn't did. even couldn't even locate that in a particular it African did. genre myself I'm I not would say it, I would say it was very late 80s though I was kind of waiting yes. for Peter Gabriel to kind of come in at a couple of points <laughs> <laughs> but definitely yes. yeah um, Daughters in the Dust is now streaming on Netflix you're listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR 3 our final film for this evening is the new film from British auteur Mike Lee, the historical epic Peterloo, which is based on an incident that happened 200 years ago, exactly, um, a year after the Napoleonic Wars ended. Um, a peaceful, um, The Napoleonic Wars left Britain poor and hungry. A peaceful protest of some 60,000 people from Manchester um, was organised to demand polit- parliamentary reform and extension of voting rights beyond privileged landowners. Uh, it turned out the government militia were kind of let loose and charged the crowd with sabres and rifles and 18 people were killed and hundreds were injured. This is auteur Mike Lee's uh, dramatisation of those events. Emma, uh, did you find this a a tragedy uh, a timely reminder of the whims of overzealous governments to suppress its citizens or even more depressing and desolate than Saturday's federal election? (laughs) Let's not talk politics. Oh, (laughs) hang on. We're doing a film about politics. The story of the 1819 Peterloo Massacre that goes for two and a half hours, this is a very difficult sell, right? And I think that this is either going to be your jam or not your jam, people. Um, I wasn't sure whether it was going to be my jam, but I I had to go and see it because I was doing this show. And um, I think it's... It was remarkable. It blew me away. I've read reviews that have said that it's um, the most tiresome boring <laughs> film ever oh, wow. which i think is a in, it, I'd, they didn't give it a they didn't give it a shot there is um it is incredibly long and it is a build up to i mean the the one line synopsis about this um you know the this massacre the massacre is what it all leads up to so it's all around this building of um a movement and um rhetoric around that movement it's um really nice in its setup is the haves and have nots which we have seen so much through cinema yet um it then breaks it down into different uh, factions and alliances within that and especially the way ego plays out within those situations. For example, they have the the master orator, um, Henry Hunt, who is there, who the the um, northern English uh, recruit to pass on their message and they're kind of seen as sort of villagers. No one really takes much notice of them and he kind of comes in as an aristocrat really even though he's someone who is there to speak for the people and what was really clever with Mike Lee with this film too is that he decided um, to not have anyone that's really super recognisable names like there's no star power in there so there's no distraction from the actual characterisation and he he manages to get into the fabric of it so beautifully well the language is incredibly dense and amazing but also um, he shows the the mechanisation of this industrial revolution there's one amazing scene where you're in the factory where they're actually um, making uh, linens or fabric and it's the noise. He really shows the noise of what it would have been like to be in that factory and then when they all go out on strike, the silence. Um, Also the massacre itself. Um, 
I just the, the presentation, the way people got together in the square, having masses of people, and having someone stand up there without ampl- amplification and try and present their message, I, it was incredibly strong because you could see how everyone was there for what they thought they were there for, but really, when it comes down to it, no one can hear anything at the mm. time, and how this has this incredible ripple effect. It's actually giving me chills. Oh. I found this incredible. I love this Fantastic. film. Fantastic. Yeah, it is. It's a, a astonishing film utterly immersive really evokes a time 200 years ago with great um i I hesitate to say authenticity i mean i don't know but it feels very very real and the dialogue is extraordinary um and from the the working class folk who speak in simple ways with these accents that are really wonderfully rendered and sound very convincing and the people look convincing bad teeth bad teeth yeah very bad teeth <laughs> then the um the upper class twits who are just vile um and are just peacocks all puffed up and uh trying to out um out or rate one another as they pontificate and and then a brilliant piece of casting one actual bit of recognisable casting with great resonances to Black Adder is Tim McEnany is the Prince Regent now it was Hugh Laurie is the Prince Regent and <laughs> but Tim McEnany was always in Black Adder and always played a twit <laughs> and yeah the royals are twits the upper class all together are just vile and despicable and supercilious and uh, you know but it, they're even then given a little bit of nuance mm-hmm. I and mean, Mike Lee hasn't absolutely made caricatures of anyone really in this it just he's just painted a, an extraordinarily vivid picture of a time that was actually extremely depressing yeah, but yeah. led and so many to, characters like this is dense with it characters. is dense yeah and australia gets a little name check or two threats <laughs> threats to send people to botany bay fantastic yeah always you know the preferred home of criminals uh peterloo is now screening at all independent cinemas You've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3 Triple R with Emma Westwood, Cerise Howard and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discussed John Wick 3, Parab- Parabellum, Daughters in the Dust and Peterloo, which are screening at all good cinemas around town. Next week, the cave will be digging into Acute Misfortune 2040 and our retro title, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. A huge thank you to fearless Faith Everard for editing the, uh, the uh, Plato's Cave podcast, Killer Carl Chapman for panelling the show and Lethal Lisa Kovac for producing our shows. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.